Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back. College Football Survivor Show, 10 most important people for the 2023 playoff race. Shahan and Mix here. Listen, I think about this a lot when we plan our podcast. Like, are we just saying the same thing over and over and over again? Is this just another way to express that you think Florida State's going to be good this year? And to some degree it is. But I think the framing, changing why, like what specifically do you think matters here, is still a way to go about it. So I don't know that we're breaking any new ground here. But we're changing the framing. So we're talking about the people that are going to drive the best teams. Who's sort of really on the spot? And and I think to me, Shahan, when we do lists like this, there are some things you take for granted. It's like, I know what I'm going to get from this person. And then there are other people that you're not sure. And I'm a little more interested in like the not sure people. Like, well, of course, like the head coach and the quarterback of every team that could win the national title are super important. but If you know what is up with them, then it's like, well, who's the part of your team? Who's the person on your team that's the pivot point? Well, they might be awesome. They could be terrible. And whether they're awesome or not awesome might be the difference between winning or losing the game that gets them in the playoff or keeps them out of the playoff. So that's how I'm thinking of it. How did you think about making a list like this, the 10 most important people in the playoff race? No, I I think that exactly what you mentioned, uh, people who potentially could swing things. The other thing that I'm keeping a close eye on is maybe, uh, you know, whether it's players or coaches, units that I think need to change or need to improve or need to be something different maybe than they've been in the past. You know, obviously uh, people who are longtime listeners to this show know that we kind of have a different philosophy on it, right? Where I like to see it. I like to see it happen. And I trust something that I've seen more than something that I can anticipate. Whereas, you know, oftentimes you are willing to kind of project a little bit more than I am. And so I think that that's the big thing for me is I want to, I I pointed out, I think, the people who I feel like from a projection perspective, uh, you know, who I think really need to rise and kind of actually take the step that we think that they can take. Okay, so let's start at number one. I'm going to imagine my number one may not even be on your list because it might not be the person for this team that you pick as the representative. So we'll start with your number one. Who's at the top of your list? The very most important person in the entire playoff race. So I... This is my only combo of people, but I think that you have to talk about them both together. And that's the combination of Mike, Mike Bobo and Carson Beck. Uh, obviously, Georgia's won the last two national championships. I think it's fair to say that they will be in the playoff discussion this upcoming season, especially because their schedule is hilarious. But the big question mark is, believe it or not, Stetson Bennett is the surest bet in college football over the past two years. And now they got to replace him. And they've got, obviously, a quarterback competition going on. Brock Vandergriff could be the guy. We, we don't necessarily know at this point, but it sounds like it's going to be Carson Beck, the, the fourth-year junior. And he's going to come in, obviously, uh, is just a more... 
I guess, traditional passing type quarterback. He's going to be somebody who's going to go down the field. He's going to be somebody who throws outside the numbers, uh, you, you know, and obviously he's going to need to develop his inside game a little bit more than Stetson Bennett did. But we already see this in the way that Georgia started to construct their roster with adding a, a bunch of extra wide receivers versus what they had last year. They clearly want to be more aggressive in the passing game. And the other part of this is, of course, Todd Bonkin is probably, if you're talking about the most valuable coordinators over the past two years, Todd Monken is probably that. And Todd Monken, obviously off to the NFL with the Baltimore Ravens now. Mike Bobo takes over. Somebody who's had success before, but certainly is no Todd Monken at the college level. These two guys, I think, uh, their fates are going to be tied together in a lot of ways. If this team succeeds, it's going to be because they have a great partnership. If this team doesn't succeed, it's going to be hard to look at anything other than this quarterback-offensive coordinator combination as to why that was the case. So I think this is right. I had Bobo number two on my list, but I think putting them together as a combo is a smart way to do it because I agree they are incredibly linked. When you look at the Football Outsiders ratings for college football teams, units the past two years, two years ago, Georgia had the number one defense, but the number three offense. And last year, Georgia had the number two defense and the number four offense. So this is not a, hey, our defense is dragging this kind of average, below average offense through a season. The thing that I would ask, and it's one of these things, it's almost like, can you just put on the uniforms and go out there and players don't matter? It's like, of course they all matter. But is it possible that the defense, and again, in a year where I think we they played so many young guys on defense last year, maybe there was a peak of defense in 21, the defense drops off a little bit in 22, the af- offense carries it a little bit more. Now in 23, maybe the defense will peak again. Is it possible that it really doesn't matter? That truly average college football quarterback play and offensive play calling would be enough? That like we really could be in that realm. That Kirby Smart is has established such a structure of winning because I think Kirby Smart with what he's done there. We talked about the off field stuff previously, but like the football stuff, he's just built a monster, and I think he's done it from the ground up in a really effective way. And you look at the individual defensive talent and the guys that they do have back, and you can look up front, you can look at linebacker, you can look in the secondary. I think they check all the boxes. They are, they're always going to have a pretty good run game. They're going to have multiple running backs. They're not going to rely on one person. And Brock Bowers is a get-out-of-jail-free card for a, a lot of the passing game, right? Like, when in doubt, throw it to one of the two or three best pass catchers in college football. As much as I agree with this, do you think both the quarterback play and Mike Bobo could be, eh, and they still win the national title? Or is there a threshold that they must meet that no matter how good your defense is, you you can't drag a non-functional offense to a third straight championship? I think they can make the playoff being average. I, I think that they can make the top four, especially, again, when you talk about this schedule. It's not a schedule that should scare them really at all. I, I mean, <laughs> like, really, this is, this is as mediocre an SEC East schedule as you're going to ever find. But I don't think they can actually win the national title this way. I, I think that you look at the Ohio State game last year. I think you look at the Alabama game the year before that. They needed their offense to come out and win them games. 
at that highest level at times. And uh, and actually, you can even talk about the first Alabama game in 2021 where they didn't show up the same sort of way. Like, And I think actually even you think back to last year's SC title game, they scored 50 points on LSU. They won 50 to 30. And obviously, a lot of those uh, LSU points later on were kind of garbage time points. But like, you have to score. You have to be able to do this. And then you throw in, by the way, the perspective that like, I don't think it's a lock that Georgia has this number one, number two defense either next year because of what they've turned over over the last two years. Uh, you know, we talked about it again with Alabama back in 2017, 18, where they had this generation of receivers and it was like, oh, they're just going to have the best receivers in the country forever. And, you know, Ohio State with quarterbacks. Oh, they're just going to have this, these quarterbacks forever. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. You know, last year, I think that wide receiver was maybe one of Alabama's biggest issues. And Georgia, they graduate this defensive line class, the the uh, obviously the Jordan Davis, the Quay Walker, then then, you know, last year, Jalen Carter. This this class is gone. And I don't think that we necessarily know that this team is destined to be another surefire number one defense again and again and again. So I actually think that the offense is maybe even more important this upcoming season than it was last year. I think what would be the fear is what the fear was during the course of the 2021 season before we saw what this Georgia team was, which is, oh, Stetson Bennett, it turns out, is actually pretty good. Yeah. Right. That he's good enough. And so that whole time in 2021, I think as we were learning about Georgia and acknowledging how good this defense was, it was like, okay, but don't they have to switch quarterbacks? Don't they have to get back to JT Daniels? Like, what are they doing? We were having that conversation like in November. And then they get to the SEC championship game. Stetson Bennett throws two picks. They only average 3.6 yards per carry in that game. And they only scored 28 points and Bama beats them. And it's like, oh, oh, okay. Well, did the thing that everybody was worried about actually happen? And then they beat an overmatched Michigan team in the semifinal. And then they get Alabama again. And Alabama's leaking receivers. Mechie's out. Jamison Williams gets hurt. The offense doesn't go crazy, but Alabama can't keep up because they're out of firepower and they get through it and they're awesome. But in our memories, I think there's a way, right? When you think about Georgia the last two years, the initial blush when you think about Georgia is dominance, isn't it? It's like, man, Georgia, they're the new Bama. And then really, if you want to go back into it, it's like, well, they did lose to Bama, and then they faced a depleted Bama and won the national title. Congratulations to them. And then, by the way, you know, Ohio State makes a field goal at the end of the game. They lose to Ohio State in a game where the fully formed peak Stetson Bennett, who had been through the fire for five years, all that he became was needed in that game to lead a drive at the end of the game. So the first title, they kind of got away with it. Maybe with the offense, the worries of the offense were real, but it didn't bite them. They got through it. And then the second year, the offense, as it turned out, was really good. And I don't think you can expect that this year, but it's still like they needed the offense to be that great. Yes. So then I think the answer is no, You can't just roll out the 81st best offense in college football and be like, oh, no, there'll be a defensive thing, three straight titles. I think you're right. I think we're confirming this is probably number one on the list because there's a standard that they've set. And by the way, in totality, it's been two years of dominance. It hasn't been a thousand percent dominance every step along the way. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that ultimately, more than Stetson Bennett's talent alone, more than the play calling alone, Georgia has done just such a good job of creating mismatches offensively with, you know, a a roster that's good offensively. I, I don't necessarily think that it's been great. I don't necessarily think it's been special. But you look at the way that they've used a Stetson Bennett. You look at the way that they've used a Darnell Washington. You look at the way that they've used a Kenny McIntosh. I think that actually the way they used him is is one of the most brilliant ways that they've used anybody, especially, you know, in a, in a roster where they didn't necessarily have these top end wide receivers. And so we have to see whether Mike Bobo can do that. That is not a guarantee. And, uh, you know, certainly they're becoming more talented because of the recruiting classes they've brought in the past couple of years. I, I think that from a talent perspective, offensively, they probably have a chance to be better this year from, again, from a pure talent perspective. And so it'll, it'll make things a little easier for Mike Bobo. But again, Todd Monken is maybe the most important assistant coach over the last three years in college football, and he's gone. And they're replacing him with a guy who obviously has failed before in the SEC. He has a different task this time. He was at Georgia last year to learn under Todd Monken as well. But there's no guarantees in this world. He has failed before. That's a, I mean, it's just, what are you going to do? I mean, it's like, you can say, oh, he's got a lot of experience. Like, well, you know, it's not all good experience. But yeah, you learn from the tough things. So I think this is the correct number one. It wasn't what I had number one. And we'll get to my number one next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Doug and Shahan, I don't think this guy's on your list. But I have this guy down. He's a head coach. And I do think, in totality, he is one of 10 best football coaches combined in college football in the NFL of the last 20 years, when you really look at his success. But I still think, I think he drives the engine for his program. Do you drive an engine? He is the engine. He drives as something. He's the steering wheel. I still think it's about him. And it's Jim Harbaugh. It's Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. I don't know that he's the Michigan guy that you would have put on your list. I have an idea who I think might be the Michigan guy you put on your list. But I still think it's the totality because you just look at what Jim Harbaugh has done and that. He starts off in 2004 as a head coach at San Diego. In year two and three, he's awesome. He goes to Stanford. Three years at Stanford, you know, they're not, they're under 500 the first two years. Year three, they're pretty, they're better. And then year four, 2010, they're 12 and one. They're awesome. And then he goes to the NFL. He goes to the NFL. He's awesome right away. Three great years, his first three years with the 49ers, including a Super Bowl appearance, one bad year, and he's gone. And then he gets to Michigan. And he writes the ship, but it takes a while to get over the hump. You think he's not going to. He's six years in, and then he flips it. But the guy's won at every level. But I don't know that we still have seen the best of him here. So if you still think there is an, a, a yet a best version of Michigan Jim Harbaugh, it's like, how? what was the best version of San Diego and Stanford and San Francisco 49ers Jim Harbaugh? It's tremendous. Is there more out there for him to motivate, to get a third straight win against Ohio State, to create an offensive system that allows J.J. McCarthy to 
to to thrive and to bring more out of him to to have Sharon Moore and Jesse Minter and all these really great assistants that he's brought in. I still think it might be a Harbaugh conversation because like, for instance, I don't have Kirby smart on my list. No, no, because Kirby smarts, Kirby smart. I don't have Nick Saban on my list because Nick Saban's Nick Saban. I don't have a, the, the no doubt about it. They've established what they can do. Head coaches. So, is Harbaugh one of them? We know what Jim Harbaugh is. Don't put him on your list. Or is there enough question? Is there enough yet Michigan upside that he should be on this list? Because I think if you think he's not fully formed to the Kirby Smart, Nick Saban degree, then I think it makes sense because everything that Michigan is, is Jim Harbaugh. He is Michigan. And he's turned this around but is there even more there? So I had him number one. What do you think? I think it's a good thought process. Here, here's what I'd point to, though, okay? 2010, Stanford coach Jim Harbaugh, they go 12-1, and 8-1 in conference. They win the Orange Bowl. They finish number four in the country. Who's the quarterback of that team? It's Andrew Luck. In 2012, he goes, takes over the San Francisco 49ers. Like you mentioned, they go 13 and three the first season, losing the NFC championship game. Next year, they make the Super Bowl. Why do they do that? They switch to Colin Kaepernick. They find their guy at quarterback who's able to elevate them and able to do different things than the Alex Smiths, than the guys who, who came before them, right? Uh, does San Diego have a good quarterback? I, I don't even actually know. I know. Just get, I was just. I was like, you've got it. You have a San Diego quarterback for me that I've never heard of. <laughs> um, but uh, point is, point is, my number two. So actually, we are right, uh, right in sync with our top two at least. Number two is JJ McCarthy, and I've ragged on this guy a little bit because I, I think that. I think that he has showed moments, but the consistency just has not been there for me in these big moments, right? I mean, he's, I think that actually that TCU game that they lost is a great example. He completes under 60% of his passes. He throws for a lot of yards, but so many of them are just explosive plays and not necessarily consistent plays. And you have to do both. You have to do both. You can't just get away with one or the other. And I think that the, the skill set is definitely there. It's sometimes it's like, I, I mean, this is probably going too far, but it's almost like sometimes a feel for the game type thing where it just, it feels like he's still developing that. It doesn't feel like he has that. You, And this is a totally unfair comparison, but like you look at a Bryce Young and every time he takes a step, you're like, oh, Bryce knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly what he could do in this moment. He knows exactly where he could go in this moment. Uh, Caleb Williams, same sort of deal. I've never felt that watching J.J. McCarthy. I've never felt that he just has this sixth sense that he can make something happen. Now, he's a young player. He was a second-year college football player last year. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this stuff isn't linear. You don't just get to assume that even though J.J. McCarthy was a five-star, that it's just going to come right away and you're going to be one of the best players in the country. You're going to be C.J. Stroud right away. That's just not how it works. So he can develop this stuff. And I do think that the one piece of this is, you know, I, I think that Jim Harbaugh has growth to do from the perspective of, I want to see that he can also add a dynamic component to a college football offense. 
I think that what he does is dynamic, uh, especially at the, you know, at, at the time, I think that what he did in the NFL was very dynamic. I think that what he did at Stanford was quite dynamic. I think that what he did at San Diego was pretty dynamic. But what he's doing right now isn't necessarily dynamic at the college level from an offensive perspective. And so that is, I think, maybe something where you could fold in Jim Harbaugh. Uh, it, let me actually clarify from a passing game perspective. I think that what they do from a yeah. running game perspective is very dynamic. But you have to do that at this point to win at a college football level. You look at the last couple national champions, right? 22-21 Georgia, they're very much passing offenses. 2020 Alabama, that's a passing offense. Uh, a wide receiver wins the Heisman. 2019 Joe Burrow. Uh, 2018 Trevor Lawrence. 2017 uh, so on and so forth, right? Jalen Hurts. 2016. Yep. Like It just keeps going. You have to be dynamic in the passing game, but you also have to be consistent. And especially on these big stages, I don't like the level of consistency that I've seen. Even though I'll point to that Ohio State game. J.J. McCarthy had three huge touchdown plays, and he also only completed half of his passes. That's that's not going to get it done against most teams. It, it got it done on that day with the breakdowns Ohio State had. But if if J.J. McCarthy completes half of his passes against Ohio State next year, Michigan's not going to win that game. They're just not. So, and we're splitting hairs here. That's not, they probably aren't worth splitting. We're talking about the national championship, to be clear. Like, we were talking about winning it all. And the difference of whether it's J.J. McCarthy or Jim Harbaugh, it's like, it's both. We yeah. could just put a slash with these guys like you did with Carson Beck and Mike Bobo. Yeah. For instance, I do think that Ohio State game, J.J. McCarthy in a couple situations made the plays that needed to be made, but also Michigan schemed it up in a way that put Ohio State defenders in bad spots that they they. Totally. broke down and JJ McCarthy took advantage. So then who won the Ohio state game last year? Was it, who was more important? Was it JJ McCarthy? Cause he was awesome. Or was it Jim Harbaugh and his coaching staff devising a game plan, being motivated, staying focused. And they got over the top. But then to the other point, they probably play well enough to beat TCU and T and JJ McCarthy throws two pick sixes and they lose the game. So a little bit of it is to me, if Michigan wins the national title, does that mean J.J. McCarthy plays like a first-round draft pick? Or does that mean that J.J. McCarthy is more like Max Duggan, who's not anybody's first-round draft pick, but the structure around him, the the way the team sets him up for success, and then he does rise to the occasion. But if you said last year, if we said last year, as great as Max Duggan was, and he finished second in the Heisman race, like, who was the most important person in TCU? making the national championship game. Is it Max Duggan? Is it Sonny Dykes as the head coach? Is it Garrett Riley as the offensive coordinator? Is it Quentin Johnston as a receiving threat? Is it Kendra Miller as a running back? Like, I don't know that I'd say Duggan. No, I'd say Garrett Riley. Which is why I said Harbaugh here. You also could say Sharon Moore. You also, because I don't know, I don't think J.J. McCarthy has to be Caleb Williams or Michael Penix for Michigan to win the national title. I do think that offense as a whole has to be more dynamic and he has to execute what they ask, but we're splitting hairs. We agree. And we've talked about this before. The dynamic capabilities of the Michigan offense are going to be the difference maker of, are they just, and that's, I'm saying that jokingly. Oh, you just made the playoff three straight years. Who cares <laughs> about that's awesome. Be unbelievable. Right. Beat Ohio state three straight years, make the playoff three straight years. Tremendous success for Michigan. But to be even more than that, they're going to need both these guys. So we can agree on that. Michigan, 
the quarterback second on your list, the head coach is first on mine. Who do you have three? At number three, I'm going with Tommy Reese from Alabama. Uh, I think that this was, in a lot of ways, a bizarre hire. Obviously, Tommy Reese has been really good at Notre Dame, but this is not the kind of coach that Nick Saban usually hires, especially in such a key year at such a key time. I mean, Tommy Reese, I think, is a sharp coach. I think that there's actually a little bit of monk into him where he, I think, is just really good at game planning, right? You, you saw these moments last year when Notre Dame was cycling through quarterbacks because of injuries. And he did a good job, I think, of getting the most out of them. But we've never seen what Tommy Reese's vision is and like what his scheme is. He doesn't have a, a system that he comes from necessarily. And so it was a little bit of a risky decision to me to hire this very young guy who maybe doesn't have a home schematically to come and take over Alabama, a place where I think that knowing who you are is one of the most important parts of being a head coach there. And granted, like he must have been really good in the interviews. Obviously, Nick Saban knows much better than I do uh, what he's capable of. But this is, I think, a very interesting coordinator choice. I think that this is probably, I mean, I'm trying to think back. Like this is this is one of the more interesting Alabama coordinators that we've hired that we've seen in a while. Because we, knew, I mean, Lane Kiffin, obviously from a personality perspective, was interesting. But like we knew what Lane Kiffin could do as a football coach. That was not really in question. I think that maybe the comparison might be, well, I, I don't even know. Comparison's not the right word, but like. When Alabama hired Brian Dabble, tight ends coach for, for the New England Patriots, like obviously Saban knows the deal because uh, because he was on Bill Belichick's staff and they're tight. But that was a weird left field move. Can this be the weird left field move that ultimately does save this team? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't like the start they're on with, with having to bring in a quarterback post-spring. But who knows? Maybe that's the case. I had Tommy Reese sixth on my list. I think this is a good pick. I do think it's the best way to express uncertainty about Alabama as a playoff team this year. And I think really the most important thing is picking the quarterback because this reminds me a little bit. In 2015, Tom Herman's the offensive coordinator for Ohio State in 2014. They won the national championship. JJ, uh, JT Barrett's the quarterback during the season. He gets hurt. Cardale Jones is the quarterback in the playoff. They win it all. 2015, Tom Herman's gone. And now they have to, Ohio State has to figure out who the starting quarterback's going to be. And they bring in Tim Beck from Nebraska, who's now the head coach of Coastal Carolina, as the quarterback's coach. And I remember the first time we talked to Tim Beck, and it's like, hey, what do you think? Who's your quarterback going to be? And he was like, I don't know. I just got here. I don't even know these guys. And I think it's very difficult when you have a quarterback competition and a new quarterback's coach slash offensive coordinator. And that decision, is Tommy Reese going to make that decision? Is Saban going to make the decision? Of course, it's both. But it also complicates it because Tommy Reese knows Tyler Buckner from Notre Dame. He doesn't right. know Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson as well. So is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Because he might go to the familiar guy, even if there's more upside with Simpson or Milrow. If, if they pick one guy to start and he's not getting it done and Saban wants to make a move or Tommy Reese wants to make a move and he's got to sell it to Saban, I think that can be very, very difficult 
for a, a position coach who does not have roots in the program. And it blew up Ohio State's 2015 season. And beyond, listen, the guy's got to figure out how they're going to play offense. And listen, Saban has a way he wants to play, so it's not from scratch. But I think that individual decision, Shahan, that's why neither of us, I don't think, have any of the quarterbacks. Because it's not really about the quarterback. It's about the process of picking the quarterback and the decision on the quarterback. And what if you have to make a second decision? And I think it could be really tough on Tommy Reese in year one. So I think it's smart you have him this high. No, and and I'm glad that you mentioned too. I mean, the fact that that you're bringing your guy in some ways and Tyler Buckner, and if you pick him, there's going to be some very displeased people in that quarterback room and, and maybe on that roster, maybe outside of the quarterback room too. So they better know what they're doing. I think that, you know, I understand why they decide to bring in another quarterback, especially if they're not seeing what they've seen. But Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson were really highly rated guys coming out. People who, you know, obviously Milrow has started football games before at Alabama. That is a, a risky move, I think, to bring in a quarterback from your previous stop who, like you said, you already have a relationship with because anything that you do with him is going to be viewed as favoritism, whether or not it's true. Yep. So good luck to you, Tommy Reese. Uh, I hope that Nick Saban doesn't bite your head off. Yeah, it's a tough spot. It's a tough spot. And it could be one of those where we look back four years from now and Tommy Reese is rolling in his fourth year as offensive coordinator Alabama. And the people are saying like, oh, man, that first year, you're getting your feet wet. And you have to make a decision and you don't, you're trying to you know, not play fit. could be really tough. All right. My number three is Jordan Travis, the quarterback at Florida State, because I'm envisioning him playing point guard with a team that has some really good skill guys. I think this is even emphasized when you add Keon Coleman from Michigan State in the transfer portal, who was one of the better receivers in the Big Ten last year. You add him to Johnny Wilson. You add him to Kentron Portier, who had an awesome spring game. They just looked like they have a gazillion weapons down there. And Jordan Travis was was great last year. I think he was the highest rated quarterback by PFF in the Power Five. And I've I've decided I've decided upon my comparison for this. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If he's Troy Smith, if he's just like I can do this, but actually I'm just gonna get it out. I got a bunch of dudes around me. I'm experienced. I'm gonna lead. I can throw. I can run. I can do it all. And I am gonna be in complete control. I do think he has to elevate even a bit above above what he was last year. Only threw five picks last year. He's second in the Heisman odds behind Caleb Williams. So there's maybe a little obviousness to it, but. He's, I think, making a leap in terms of spotlighting college football, in terms of the opportunity that Florida State has, that people are talking about them this way, and I think he's going to make it all go. So when I'm trying to represent Florida State, I thought about Jared Verse on the defensive side of the ball, who might be the best edge rusher in college football this year. You could put it on Mike Norvell, but I just thought Jordan Travis is has a chance to come out early and just look like he's running an unstoppable offense. And if he does that, I think it's possible that Florida State will emerge as the most likely challenger to Georgia in September. 
They're playing LSU early, and Jordan Travis, I think, could be right at the front of the Heisman race. So I have him third on my list. Yeah, I. so the big thing when I was looking at my list was a lot of head co- or a couple head coaches, a couple offense coordinators, a couple quarterbacks. And so I really wanted to pick Keon Coleman as my guy for Florida State. But then I realized I was just getting too cute with it. Like, I, so <laughs> Jordan, Jordan Travis is number eight on my list. I, I put him a little lower because I think he's slightly more of a known commodity. I think that I trust in what he does a little more than some of the other people I have on this list. I think that there's more of a track record, but that's a credit to him. That, that's not a knock. That's a credit. Uh, obviously last year takes the massive step, completes 64% of his passes, throws for 3,000 yards, 24 touchdowns and Johnny Wilson emerged as such a big-time player for them last year. Now you add Hakeem Williams, the five-star freshman, to the mix. Now you add Keon Coleman to the mix. It It's going to be, I think, a really special wide receiver room. And I, I mean, it's. It, I think, you know, it's pretty unbelievable what uh, what Florida State has coming back. Obviously, they, they have a rusher as well in Trey Benson, who nearly rushed for 1,000 yards. It's easy to see why people are excited about this team. But I think it does come down to, can Jordan Travis have that kind of season? If Florida State is a playoff team, Jordan Travis will be in New York. He, he will. I mean, and he might win the dang thing. But, you know, if they fail, Jordan Travis is also going to get, I think, the lion's share of the blame. Just because, you know, he's the sixth-year quarterback who obviously is the engine of this team, like you mentioned. So, I, I think Jordan Travis is the right pick. I had him a little lower because I, I think that's... I think he's a little bit more of a known commodity, but uh, but I have them number eight on my list. Evolution of thinking. We change our minds from March to May to June to August. I think he's my Heisman pick right now. Sure. I think he's my Heisman sure. pick right now, which again is his second in the Heisman odds. Is, and the, and Caleb Williams is first. And it's just my instinct is to be like the voters aren't going to vote a guy two times in a row. So Jordan Travis, I think, is my Heisman pick. All right. Number four for you. Who is it? So I did, I, I knew that I had to get a player who was not a quarterback on my list. And so, so I did. With number four, I'm going with Beer Alexander from USC. Uh, somebody who obviously was in line to start at Georgia this upcoming year and play a lot of snaps for them. Somebody who I think is just one of those types of defensive linemen that you do not see in the Pac-12 with the bulk and activity that he has. And certainly he's joining a defense that needs him desperately. And so, look, is, is Bear Alexander going to, I don't know, be an All-American in year one? I don't necessarily know. Does he need to be? I don't think so. But he does need to be a difference maker. He does need to be somebody who clogs up the run game. He does need to be somebody who can cause a little bit of havoc in the pass rush. Uh, he needs to live up to his potential. And I think that USC is a great spot for him. I think he's going to play a whole lot there. I'll kind of like in tandem throw in Anthony Lucas as well, another five-star transfer from Texas A&M on the defensive line. But that was the position that USC identified more than any to add help. And Bear Alexander is by far the biggest piece that they added on the defensive side of the ball. So I've Bear Alexander number four. Uh, Certainly, I think for USC, you could also consider putting Alex Grinch on that list. I think you could make a case for Caleb Williams because of how important he is to the team. Uh, you could talk about one of these wide receiver transfers, maybe Mario Williams coming back, but I did ultimately end up going with Bear Alexander. So I went with Alex Grinch. 
same kind of thinking. You have Bear Alexander fourth. I had Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator for USC fifth. The one thing I would bring up is that you loved Tuli Tui Pelotu yeah. last year. Yeah. For USC, who played defensive tackle at an All-American level, and USC's defense, according to Football Outsiders, was still 94th in the nation. They had the number one offense, the number 94 defense. Their defense needs to be better. Yes. So how we express that, we are expressing, we think USC's playoff chances hinge less on the Heisman winning quarterback, less on the offensive guru head coach, less on... The analyst, Cliff Kingsbury, who's coming to hang out and teach quarterback play, and he was out at a recruiting camp this week, you know, working with quarterback recruits. And it's like, oh, who's that guy? It's like, oh, he used to be an NFL head coach. I was just hanging out. That's the certainty. We don't know about this defense. So they need guys like Bear Alexander to be awesome. They need Alex Grinch to lead a better defense. So I went with the coach, but we're expressing the same thing. How long? How long? Is Lincoln Riley going to allow himself to be held back by this? And you're not, Lincoln Riley's not off the hook. He's the head coach of the whole program. He still oversees all the recruiting. He makes all the hires. He's never had, and I know we've talked about it before. You can go back there. There have been years when the Oklahoma defense was pretty decent. If he just brought in a, you know, go get, go hire the Garrett Riley of, who would be the defensive court? Who's the, the, you know, it would have been Dave Aranda before Dave Aranda became a head coach. Who's like the guy? Jim that Leonard, used- probably. Yeah. Okay. Like, is this is this going to be the year that Alex Grinch with these new players like Bear Alexander that they figure it out? And Lincoln Riley is not just a playoff coach, but a coach who looks like he can win a national title because Oklahoma really hasn't been that. They've been a playoff team that looks like, well, that's their ceiling because their defense isn't good enough. And... It- <laughs> Like, what do you believe in more? That it's finally going to happen with the same guy or that they're going to have to make a change? So the defense has to be better. And I I sound frustrated by it only because (laughs) they're so good at one thing. This is, this is, again, Alex Grinch is lucky that his name isn't Alex Riley or he'd be getting the Brian Ferentz treatment. It's like, oh man, there's these, if they fight, if we find out that Alex Grinch and Lincoln Riley are cousins, it's over. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I like the idea of, uh, of Alex Grinch being like Lincoln Riley's like 12 year old child. Like, uh, cause Lincoln's like 38 at this point. Yeah. But, uh, so, so here's what I'll say on that, right? Obviously Alex Grinch at Oklahoma was not good enough. Obviously, Alex Grinch in his first season at USC was not good enough. I will say this. I do think that, especially in this first year at USC, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Alex Grinch was any good necessarily, but I think it was personnel deficiencies more than anything else. Now, I don't think he necessarily made it better. I don't think that he necessarily did these brilliant things to fix everything. But I do think that personnel deficiencies were a huge part. They had two players, I think, that were really, really, really good players in Tuli Tui Pelotu uh, and Makai Blackman in the defensive backfield. I think both those guys were legitimate game changers. And that's it. I, I don't think that they had a whole lot else that they felt very good about. And look at the transfer class they brought in. Look at how many guys they brought in on the defensive side of the ball. And that should tell you how they felt about the personnel that they have on that side of the ball. So... I think that I am at this point willing to say, look, Alex Grinch took over at uh, Oklahoma 
when the reputation had already kind of been set in some ways that Oklahoma is a bad defensive program. I think that impacts your recruiting. I think that impacts uh, your development in some ways. And now he has an opportunity for for this fresh start at USC. And I think that you look at the personnel that they're bringing in, they still seem to be convincing high-level players that they're going to figure this thing out defensively. And maybe that's just wrong. But I do think that at this point, I view it as more of a personnel issue than a pure coaching issue. So I'm willing to give him that benefit of the doubt this year. If it's terrible again, then... Like you said, you got to make your Jim Leonard move. You got to make your Jim Knowles move. You got to make whatever move you want to throw out there. But uh, but I do think that having a legitimate game changing pair of defensive linemen, because you know have, having a great edge rusher is is cool and everything, but like that's one place, that's one spot. I think that the benefit of having a great interior lineman is that I think it makes everybody else better too because of the attention that needs to go towards him as well. So that's why I have Bear number four on my list. Alex Grinch in 2017 at Washington State. Washington State had the 23rd best defense in the country, according to the Football Outsiders metrics, and he's been living off that reputation ever since. He got hired at Ohio State in 2018. Based off that, he was at Ohio State for one year. He went to Oklahoma. His first year at Oklahoma, they were 53rd in defense. Like, I don't, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't know... When Ohio State hired him, it was like a big deal. He was from Ohio, and he felt like a guy on the rise. It's 2023, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know what we're going off of here. So this, I think this is the last. They've either, they've either got to be really good this year, or you've got to make a change. And by the way, USC has to figure out who their stinking athletic director is going to be. So it's not like the athletic director is breathing down Lincoln Riley's neck to say, hey, like the defensive coordinator is not good enough, but maybe as soon as they get an AD – They'll figure that out. Maybe that'll be one of the first things the AD does because you can't pay to get Lincoln Riley and change your program and then have this hanging, have an anchor that's holding you back. That's called the Iowa way. You can't do that in Los Angeles where one side of the ball is absolutely ruining your chances. And that's the point that USC is at to me right now. We're both addressing it with these moves. Okay, you have Bear Alexander fourth. I have Alex Grinch fifth, fifth, fourth for me is Ryan Day, head coach at Ohio State. And that's because I also don't think we know 100% for sure. He was on a podcast the other day where he kind of took the blame for the Michigan loss last year and said, basically, we didn't let it rip. We were too worried about getting in a toughness battle and we got in our own heads, right? And we weren't prepared for that. You saw what Ohio State could be in the Georgia game. Part of that was because they were indoors, but also I think they changed their mindset. And, and I think they can't try to out-tough Michigan. Michigan's runs the ball. That's a shorthand for tough. That's not what Ohio State does best. Don't try to beat Michigan at what Michigan does best. Try to beat Michigan with what you do best. So potentially giving up play calling to Brian Hartline, making some other adjustments with the program. He's only in year five as a head coach. Two straight losses to Michigan. Michigan's really good, but there does get to be a point. I am like super far away from like the hot seat. What do you know? How dare you lose your rival? Listen, Michigan's awesome. But at some point, it's going to become a thing. Two is not it. Two straight losses to Michigan is not it. Three, I think, begins to approach it. And some people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Begins to approach it. It's on fire. So... I think they have – this is also – he's a quarterback guy. They have a new quarterback. He has a lot of responsibility for that. They have enough. Their defense should be much better. 
They have Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka. They have enough. And Ryan Day, the bottom line of this whole thing is Ryan Day has to make sure Ohio State plays its best game on the last Saturday in November in Ann Arbor. That's what he has to do. And I do think if you're going through Ohio State, is it on Kyle McCord as a quarterback? Is it on Jim Knowles as a defensive coordinator? Is it on Brian Hartline as a first-time play caller? I really do think it goes back to Ryan Day, which is why I have him fourth as the Ohio State representative on this list because I think they have the talent to certainly be a playoff team and, and be a legit national title contender. So I have my Ohio State person number five on my list. I do not have Ryan Day. I have Brian Hartline because I do agree with everything that you just said about Ryan Day. My question is going to be, how much oversight is Brian Hartline going to need? How much attention is Brian Hartline going to need from Ryan Day? Because if the answer is not very much, I I think that's a game changer, right? I think that is a, a huge deal if Brian Hartline is able to take over the offense in a way that Ryan Day only has to worry about it maybe game weeks and game time. Right. But I don't know that that's a guarantee by any means. You know, I, I don't want to like cast aspersions, but right. Like obviously Brian Hartline has already had an off the field incident since he's taken over this job where he's supposed to be leading this offense that is so integral to this program. He has to be the one who in a lot of ways is deciding this quarterback competition. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see whether he can do it well, whether he can do it right. Uh, you talked about it with Tommy Reese. Obviously, Brian Hartline is an internal candidate, and he also has the head coach who's still going to be there. But bringing in a new coordinator at the same time as you're having a quarterback competition is really difficult because you don't know where loyalties lie. You don't know the relationships. It wasn't Brian Hartline's job to have relationships with Kyle McCord and uh, um, uh, Devin Brown, right? Devin Brown. Yeah, it, it wasn't his job previously to have relationships with this guy. All of a sudden, now he does. All of a sudden, this is his job. All of a sudden, he does need to manage these personalities. And so, uh, and he has to do that in the same way while also obviously keeping track of one of the most star-studded wide receiver rooms, both in a positive way and also in a difficult way in college football. So Brian Hartline is being handed a lot right now. And for good reason. I I mean, the reality is if this goes well, he could be a head coach in 2024. You know, he could be a head coach very, very soon if this goes well. But that is a lot to ask from a very young coach who is obviously known as a great recruiter and developer of wide receivers, but now is going to be asked to do a lot more and, and in some ways be a lot more important to this program than he's been. I do think this is interesting because Ohio State is an offensive program, but I think this is right, that as much as the offense has been a certainty, I do think it's still Ryan Day and Brian Hartline. Yes, the Jim Knowles defense in year two as a defensive coordinator has to take that step, but there's a lot lot of belief there. There's a lot of guys back. There's a lot of highly recruited guys in that mix. I, I do think it's about their ability to retain how good they have been on offense while also making these necessary program adjustments to go try to beat Michigan. And I think Brian Hartline and Ryan Day are at the heart of that. I think we're on the right page to have these guys on our list. All right, you had Brian Hartline five. I had Ryan Day four. I have my five and my six. Who's your six? So I know this is a playoff show, but we're going to talk. Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't even do it. I didn't even do it. You really are doing it? I didn't even do it. Okay. At number six, I have the team that should, in my opinion, 
beat Alabama that should, in my opinion, win the Big 12 with no more than one loss, that should have a chance to make the college football playoff, that is led by a coach who has never lost fewer than four games in one season. My number six is Steve Sarkeesian. Everything is aligned. I, I've, I've said it in basically every radio interview I've done all offseason. I have covered the Big 12 since 2013, and I have picked Texas to win the Big 12 zero times. Right. So like get out of here with this like, oh, my gosh, the media always overrates them. Oh, my gosh, we're falling for this again. I've never done it. I never have. You can say whatever you want about other people. I never have. But this is a team with a second year starting quarterback in Quinn Ewers, who I still think is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the entire country with a wide receiver room that I think this upcoming season might actually be what people think think it's been the past two years because it hasn't been that good the past two years they had Jonte Cook a five-star freshman who's already been a difference maker for them Isaiah Neer is a transfer from Wyoming who was supposed to play a big role before he tore his ACL uh they added the transfer Adonai Mitchell from Georgia Xavier uh Xavier Worthy is back of course Jatavian Sanders at tight end is back I think he's a I legitimately think Jatavian Sanders is a potential first round pick at, at tight end he is a great player defensively they took a huge step forward last year and i think that they're going to only continue to do so but like sark it's on you man it's on you there's no excuses if they don't win 10 games this year that is a failure and it is a failure that falls at the feet of no one other than steve sarkisian we obviously know what he can do as an offensive coach but we haven't necessarily seen it in the team culture stuff we haven't necessarily seen it in the resilience part we haven't necessarily seen it in the day-to-day i mean last year's team frankly should have been a lot better than eight and five, I think you could argue, but they went eight and five, right? He's 13 and 12 in his first two years as, as the head coach at Texas. And I don't want to be disrespectful, right? But like, too late, too late, <laughs> too late. You but, can't go back now. But Texas fired Tom Herman, they hired this guy, and they kind of declared, especially with the move to the SEC. They basically declared, this is going to be our Saban. This is the guy that we're building our program around. Before he had ever done anything, before he had ever won anything. And I think that you look at the state of the roster right now, you look at the state of the program right now, there's a lot of things about this roster that I think is very good that don't have a whole lot to do with Steve Sarkeesian that have a lot to do with what everybody around him is trying to do for him. You know, the, the, the tw- in 2021, they had this NIL thing where they basically targeted offensive linemen and suddenly they had the best offensive line class in the country. Kelvin Banks comes because, oh, by the way, we're paying offensive linemen $50,000 before anybody else was doing that. Right? So, like, how much of that is Steve Sarkeesian? I don't know. But that's beside the point. They're here now. They landed Quinn. They landed Arch, which I do think does have to do with Sark. But... You have all these pieces. You have this roster. I think you have a pretty incredible staff, frankly. Like, there's no excuses. There, if this roster doesn't succeed, I can't point to anybody other than Steve Sarkeesian as to why that would be the case. It's a compelling, passionate case made by the man who is most qualified to make it on the college football scene. I didn't have a Texas person in my top 10. We are getting into the range of... 
the people at the edge of the playoff discussion. And so who are you going to pick? This person, if it all goes right, can push this team into the playoff, but they certainly aren't assumed to be there. So you went with Texas. I went with a couple other teams, and we'll get to those next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, so I have four left. You have three left. My number seven is Michael Penix at Washington. The quarterback at Washington, he only threw eight picks last year. He threw three interceptions in their two losses. He threw five interceptions in their 11 wins. The two losses, he had two picks and one. The other, he had no touchdown passes and one pick. I just feel like watching him, there are times where it's like, oh, here they go. And then it's like, oh my gosh, right at a bad moment, he he makes a throw you can't make. And if he can just pull those out, he's unbelievable. He's through the roof. He's good for like 350 a game. Washington has 2,000-yard receivers back. We love Kalen DeBoer as a head coach. It feels like everything's in place for Washington. And am I asking Michael Penix Jr. to be perfect? Maybe. Maybe that's what it takes for Washington to make the playoff. He's awesome, but he might have to be perfect and awesome. So I think Washington is a very legitimate playoff contender. And in trying to say, you know, what does Washington need? I just think it's him. It's not that we have questions about him, but it's can he go from very good to infallible, which is a lot to ask and a lot to put on a young guy. But if he does, then I think Washington's going to be right there and I have him seventh. No, I'm I'm a huge Michael Penix fan. I will say there's just something, I don't know if it's about his delivery. I don't know if I'm just thrown off by him being a lefty. I don't know if it's just the angles of the field and the offense. Like every pass that he throws feels like, a bomb like like a a total just like it's going 80 miles per hour it's going a thousand yards away like everything feels hard almost do you know what i mean like just with the way that he is yeah but then the pass is complete then you know it goes for a touchdown like yeah it just it just there are players who make football look so easy and i feel like michael Penix makes football look so hard in a, in a different kind of way, but you see obviously what he did last season. And, you know, I, I almost want to point to consistency, but that consistency was there. He, he led the nation in passing yards. He threw for 4,600 yards. Right. He completed 65% of his passes. Obviously, I think, um, you know, when you look at last year's schedule, the schedule helped them. They did not have the most difficult schedule in the Pac-12. They, they played Oregon, but like, and they played Oregon State and they did beat them and and that's a, a big time good win. But like they dodged most of the rest of the good teams. Uh, you know, they lost to UCLA early. Michigan State ended up being a huge disappointment. This year's gonna be a lot more difficult, I think, because you go to Michigan State, a game I still think that they should win. You get Oregon at home at USC, Utah at home at Oregon State. That that's a tough road, and they all come within about seven weeks of each other. So we're going to figure out what Michael Penix is really made of in, in that stretch. I think that, you know, you look at Washington and I think that you could almost in some ways group the, the Pac 12's quarterbacks. Do you have any other Pac 12 quarterbacks on your list? I don't. Okay. So I think in some ways you could group the Pac 12 quarterbacks with Michael Penix, Bo Nix at Oregon, Cameron Rising at Utah. You could even kind of throw Caleb Williams into there and whichever one of them is able to make the least mistakes is probably going to be the one who wins mm. the Pac-12. Oh, DJ, also yeah. you throw in there as well. DJ Uyongle. Yeah. At Oregon State, yep. 
And, and I think that that's kind of the way that we have to think about it is which of these five quarterbacks is going to take their baseline. Cause obviously like Caleb Williams is going to be the best player, but like can take their baseline and take the biggest step in front of their baseline. It could be Penix. I, I, it's going to be really hard to replicate what he did last year because, oh my gosh, it was incredible what he did last year. Um, but I think that whichever one of these quarterbacks is able to take that step forward is probably going to be the quarterback that's, uh, that has a chance to make the college football playoff and has a chance to win the Pac-12. All right. He was my seven. Who's your seven? My seven is Garrett Riley from Clemson. Uh, and he is my eight. Yes. He is my eight. Yes. I think you could have him higher on this list. I think I think that would be acceptable. I kind of I kind of got a little tired of the back to back quarterback offensive coordinator pairing, so I, I, I might have broken my list a little bit that way. But I think that looking at Garrett Riley, he was such a game changer during his one year at TCU. Just completely took an offense that had been stagnant, took a quarterback who had been below average, and turned all of that into a national championship game roster. And now he goes to Clemson, a place that has been stagnant, a place that hasn't gotten the most out of their quarterback. And he has a chance to make things completely different, to completely turn things around. You know, their previous system, uh, Clemson's previous system in some ways was very simple and was kind of just built on talent winning in some ways, I think you could say. And I think that when you look at the top of college football right now, you can't do that anymore. You can't get away with talent winning at this point. You have to do creative things. You have to scheme guys open. I think that defenses in general have just grown so much. We talk so much about offense in college football, but actually I think that the defensive innovation right now in college football is pretty unbelievable. And just being stagnant won't get it done. And I think that credit to Dabo Swinney for making this change, for bringing in the number one coordinator, not even on the market because he wasn't even on the markets. Uh, and I think that's huge for them. And I made the the comparison last week. Like, look at what Alabama did at offensive coordinator. Look at what Notre Dame did at offensive coordinator. They are not hiring Garrett Riley's away. It's not happening. But I think that Garrett Riley is potentially a game changer. Uh, I think that Riley had some of that Todd Monken in some ways where he was just so good at game planning and so good at creating mismatches. Because the reality is like, Look, sorry to my TC French who are listening. Max Duggan's not that good. Like, he's not that good. <laughs> Max knows that. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. He played very well. He, he did great. Yes. He's not Caleb Williams. Right. It's okay. Right. And I think that Garrett Riley found a way to use Max Duggan that only emphasized everything he can do and completely took away what he can't do. And it sounds easy. That's what every coach in college football is trying to do. But Garrett Riley's done it. And I think that now he's going to Clemson. He's going to have Kate Klubnick to work with, who I think is a very special player, who also is a little flawed. I, I don't think that he's as perfect or flawless as a lot of number one quarterbacks you see come through. Obviously, he would have been number two if Quinn Ewers did not reclassify. But he's a special player. I think that he has a chance to be a dynamic college football player. I actually think that they're in some ways... He can be super Max Duggan in terms of his skill sets. Mm. Um, will it happen right away? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Clemson has the advantage of, I think, that there are only two or three games on the schedule that are real 
difference maker dynamic games that they have to be up for. So they're going to have a little bit of time. They do get, uh, they do get Florida State pretty early. So that's going to make things a little complicated. But I do think that Garrett Riley could potentially swing this playoff race. I think that he could potentially turn Clemson into something that they haven't been in a little while. And uh, he is the perfect, to me, coordinator hire of this modern era. This to me is a little bit like the this, this Steve Sarkeesian one. If you don't view Clemson as a primary team in the playoff discussion, as an assumption in the playoff discussion anymore, it's more they're right there. Can can somebody push them into the conversation? And can Steve Sarkeesian push Texas? Can Garrett Riley, as the new offensive coordinator, push Clemson? I'm not surprised that both of us have Garrett Riley on this list. All right, that means we each have our ninth and our tenth spots left. I only had one defensive player on my list and I have him at number nine and it's trying to express what I'm trying to say about a team. It's Harold Perkins at LSU. Can LSU be special in certain ways that get them over the top? Can LSU be special in ways that let them beat Bama again, that let them take another shot potentially at Georgia in an SEC championship game? Jaden Daniels, the quarterback, is going to be a huge part of that. But I do think Harold Perkins is the expression of that on defense. That is, is he just going to be, as a second-year guy, just just one of those guys that you have to game plan around? That he's a like Isaiah Simmons was at Clemson a few years ago, or that you know that um, Nicobe Dean was sort of two years ago as a linebacker at Georgia. Just like he's everywhere, you can't escape him. And making a move to more of an inside linebacker off the edge, he just has an unbelievable talent had an unbelievable freshman year and if he's helping the LSU defense throw a monkey wrench into everything the opposing offense is trying to do and then Jaden Daniels is lighting up on the offensive side of the ball we may look up at October 1st and be like we think LSU is the best team in the country they're going to get Florida State early and so I have Harold Perkins on one side of the ball in that matchup and Jordan Travis on the other side of the ball for Florida State let's go but I, I, I think they're going to need a couple extraordinary performances, but they have a chance to get them at LSU this year. I have them ninth. No, LSU, I didn't end up putting a player or a coach from them on my list, partially because, you know, like you said, there's, I think, a lot of things that they kind of need to do right. And they were able to do that last year, but I, I think that's going to be a big part of it. Harold Perkins is probably the right representative from this team because I do think that. I mean, that freshman campaign from him was unbelievable. He is the reason that they won the SEC West as a freshman. And I think that there's a lot of Will Anderson to his game. I think that the question for him, can he be a more complete football player? We know what he can do off the edge, but can he be a true linebacker? Can he do linebacker things? Can he drop back into coverage? Can he be a a run gap stopper? Like, they're legitimate questions. But he is ridiculous he he is absolutely ridiculous and I think that like you said he's somebody who can potentially throw a wrench in a lot of playoff plans obviously they play Alabama they play Florida State like you mentioned in week one um I did consider Jaden Daniels for the spot because I think I, I think defensively I feel pretty good about what LSU is it's offensively I think where I I want to see more dynamic play potentially and we saw that at times last year. And I think that that was part of my hesitation is I don't necessarily know where that dynamic play is going to come from. And that's why I'm probably a little lower on this upcoming year's LSU in terms of being a legitimate playoff team. But they've surprised me last year. 
they could surprise me again. And I think that Harold Perkins is going to be an All-American. Who's your nine? My nine, uh, and it's funny, I, I'm, I have a conversation about teams that I probably don't think will actually make the playoff, but I'm going to go with one of those teams right now. Sam Hartman is just so freaking good, and he's joining a Notre Dame team, I think, in a period of transition in a positive way. Right, we we made the comparison in some ways to when obviously Lane Kiffin took over at Alabama. They they have Blake Sims come in. You know, I think that maybe you could make the comparison in some ways to Jalen Hurts and and Tua coming through. Where it just changes what they're doing in a fundamental way. And Sam Hartman is that kind of player at Notre Dame. You see, similar in some ways to Georgia. You have a quarterback who's more of a pure passing quarterback than than the Tyler Buckner or Drew Pine that maybe you saw last year. And they're being aggressive with wide receivers. They added two really good ones from the state of Texas and Jaden Greathouse and Braylon James, who I know I've mentioned a lot, but I think they will be contributors this upcoming year for this team. Uh, they, they added a transfer from Virginia Tech and Caleb Smith. Actually, funny story. They have two players named Caleb Smith, who are both wide receivers joining the roster this year, whose names are spelled the exact same way, both with Ks. It's very, Hmm. very random. One is a senior and one is a freshman, which honestly is even funnier to me. So they're going to have generations of Caleb Smiths to go off of. But uh, I think that you see with how aggressive they're being at wide receiver that they want to change their program. They want to fundamentally change the identity that was created under Brian Kelly offensively. They don't just want to be good enough. They want to be dynamic. And I think that Sam Hartman is the perfect quarterback to get them through that. And, you know, a big part of his transfer was because people questioned whether coming out of that slow mesh system, whether he could translate to the next level. I think that he's going to play more of a pro style this upcoming year and prove absolutely he can and potentially work his way into being a day two draft pick. So this list is the most important people in the playoff race. It's not the most important people who are going to make the playoff. And if Sam Hartman and Notre Dame beat USC or Ohio State or Clemson, they could have a huge impact on the playoff race without making the playoff. So my number 10 is a quarterback that I think applies in a similar way, although he's coming at it from a completely different place. And it's Drew Aller at Penn State. So Sam Hartman's an old guy. Drew Aller is a young guy. Going to be a first-year starter, a second-year player. But if Drew Aller, he doesn't have to do it every week. And I don't know that it's fair to have that expectation. Although we've seen second-year, first-year starters do it before. Go ask Bryce Young at Alabama. If Penn State beats Michigan or Ohio State, throws a wrench into what everybody's expectations are about this playoff race. And you look at every preseason thing right now, Penn State's a pretty much a consensus top-10 team. And we talk about what they have in the backfield, led by Nick Singleton. We talk about what they have defensively, and Manny Diaz as the defensive coordinator there. There's a lot of potential with Penn State, but they've been blocked by what Ohio State has been and what Michigan has become the past two years. This is the best quarterback talent they've had in X number of years. If he breaks through, Shahan, maybe they're not ready to go 12-0. and Maybe they're not ready to go 11-1. and But if they win one of those two games... It changes the race because otherwise you keep on the table, Michigan versus Ohio State, 11-0, and 11-0. Are you setting up a world where both those teams could make the playoff, right? Penn State does it if Sam Hartman at Notre Dame beats Ohio State. So I like having a couple of these guys. Their teams have the potential. Notre Dame and Penn State are both deserved to be in this edge of the playoff conversation, but they might be really valuable to the race 
by beating a team that then knocks them out of the playoff. And I think either Hartman or Aller could do that. No, I, I am right in line with you. I have James Franklin, number 10 on my list. I think that what you were saying about Jim Harbaugh off the top, those are the questions more that I have about James Franklin. And and I think maybe even a little bit of a comparison to the Steve Sarkeesian bit too, where look at what he's built. What he's built is incredible. Obviously the consistency that they have, you know, this is, this is probably a, a more existential thing, but like, I don't think Penn State was guaranteed to be one of these programs whenever everything happened a decade ago. And James Franklin has ensured that it is, that it is one of these it programs, even in the Big Ten. And they haven't consistently, obviously, been up there with Ohio State and with Michigan the last couple of years, but they've been number three pretty consistently, not, not just in the Big Ten East, but I think across the Big Ten for the past five years. But is there more? Is there that next level? Is there that next step? Is James Franklin, you know, obviously gets a criticism for being a poor game manager of, of flubbing his, his team in, in some key moments and, and things like that. But you also have to talk about, again, the, the roster that he's built. So I think that for James Franklin, his teams have had somewhat of a ceiling on them. And this is as much a this year thing as I think it's going to be a 2024 thing when I think this question is really going to be put to the test. And maybe James Franklin is number two on my list next year. What is the ceiling? Can he elevate? Can he take this thing to the next level? And I think that that is a head coach question more than it is a player question, more than it is a coordinator question, because everything right now, in my opinion, is in place. Obviously, again, like you mentioned, Penn State was a top 10 team last year. so. It's not as dire as coaching them to eight and five like it is at Texas, but it is. Can you win in these margins? Can you break through these margins? And that's a very difficult thing to do as a football coach. All right. That's our final list. We had four the same. We had a bunch of other teams where you expressed similar ideas through different people. Shahan's list. Number one. Georgia offensive coordinator Mike Bobo paired with Georgia quarterback Carson Beck. Number two, Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy. Number three, Alabama offensive coordinator Tommy Reese. Number four, USC defensive tackle Bear Alexander. Number five, Ohio State offensive coordinator Brian Hartline. Number six, Texas head coach Steve Sarkeesian. Number seven, Clemson offensive coordinator Garrett Riley. Number eight, Florida State quarterback Jordan Travis. Number nine, Notre Dame quarterback Sam Hartman. And number 10, Penn State head coach James Franklin. I had number one, Michigan coach, head coach Jim Harbaugh. Number two, Georgia offensive coordinator Mike Bobo. Number three, Florida State quarterback Jordan Travis. Number four, Ohio State head coach Ryan Day. Number five, USC defensive coordinator Alex Grinch. Number six, Alabama offensive coordinator Tommy Reese. Number seven, Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. Number eight, Clemson offensive coordinator Garrett Riley. Number nine, LSU linebacker Harold Perkins. And number 10, Penn State quarterback Drew Aller. We got some more stuff planned. We always appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We'll catch you soon. Make sure you're reading Shahan at CBSSports.com. But for now, on behalf of Shahan J. Haraja, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.